0: Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Coulte and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. It felt like art department graduated from Toronto's club scene to the international stage overnight. Their swift rise can be attributed to their breakthrough single, Without You, which was voted RA's number one track of 2010. Thanks to DJs like Jamie Jones and Seth Troxler, the tune was a certified hit even before it was officially released. A year later they dropped their debut album, The Drawing Board, which established Kenny Glasgow and Johnny Wyatt as one of the biggest acts in Contemporary House. The subsequent three years have flown by for the pair, who relocated from Canada to Europe to maintain their hectic touring schedule. Stopping by RA's London office, they were in a talkative mood, lifting the lid on the story behind Without You, tracing their origins in the Toronto scene and discussing their upcoming second album, Natural Selection. Art Department LP is on the way, it's called Natural Selection.
1: How did you guys approach making your second album? Well, the second album was kind of a mindfuck, to be honest, going into it. I mean, off the back of the success of the last album. I mean, it's, it's a strange thing when you're making a record thinking about having to, you know, appease certain people and maybe even outdo yourself for the last album. Yeah, I mean, it was a tricky one. So we decided to go back to Toronto, where we wrote the first album, rented a studio there underneath the Hoxton nightclub, which I don't even know if they know that we were there still <laughs> to this day. <laughs> we
2: went in and came out. Yeah, kind of
1: on the low, rented like a ghosts. space and uh, stayed there for a month writing at home as well in our separate studios and in this space there. and. Uh, For me, I mean, what we had discussed was going back there might kind of bring back some of that... Magic. Yeah, and that original feeling that kind of helped us create the first record and going back home and being around family and friends, you know, a bunch of ex things. Yeah. (laughs) And did it work?
2: I think it did. It's, It's a lot different than the first album. It's like, to me... It's a good artist album. It's a great artist album. Again, I go back to by the first one and listen to it, and I'm like, wow, this is, you know, to me personally, I can only speak for my personal self, this is an amazing an album. And still, when I listen to the second one, I don't know which one is better, but I look at them as two total different types of albums. One was our first album to like introduce a sound, our sound, what we're doing in our studios to, like, as much people as we can. This album, after them hearing that, I know a lot of people are going to be thinking, wow, there's not that much actual dance tracks on the album, but it's more of an artist album.
1: There's actually, there's one. There's, <laughs> there's one, one dance song <laughs> on this record. <laughs> Would you say it's, it's more geared
0: towards home listening, or what kind of changes are, are we talking about here from from the drawing board through to, to Natural Selection?
1: Yeah, I mean, the drawing board, it did cover a bit of ground. There was some kind of experimental stuff, like Robert's, Robert's Cry, Cry and... Um, in the mood, you know, which was that kind of hip hop thing that sampled SWV. Mm-hmm. This one is overall more experimental, more kind of broken beat, more of like uh, more of a down tempo thing. It's not banging club stuff, really, aside from one song, like we said. I mean, we we're just saying going into this, it was a total mind fuck, you know, taking into account what all the editors are waiting to tell like shit on the album possibly, you know, and you know, all our fans that are expecting a certain sound because we're famous for that sound from the first album. But I think once we started writing, it was just back to kind of not giving a shit and back to how we felt originally when we were writing music with nothing to think about, you know, nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And uh, I think we ended up with an honest LP. And I imagine it can't be
0: an easy thing to ignore what, you know, your fans and 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 the media are saying about you it was a difficult process to once you got into that studio to put that out of your mind
2: for me it was
1: yeah yeah i mean i think going in like knowing that we were renting that space and when we're going back to toronto i was kind of tripped out about it but i mean once we started writing and i mean i was spending time in that dark room like it kind of i was there a lot i was there like 24 hours a day for a month and like I don't know. It just kind of evaporated because also at the same time, I personally I haven't had a lot of time to write music in the last few years. So for me, it was like I think a lot of stuff just coming out, you know, that needed to. So it was just like that kind of overpowered the the thoughts.
0: And tell me about how much your your lives have changed since the drawing board came out.
1: We're rich, <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, bitch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I mean, a lot. I had never traveled this way. Before this, so I mean, number one, when you're living on the road versus living in Toronto for 30 years, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it changes quite a bit. You know, everything becomes a lot quicker, your relationships, everything is just fast paced, everything's quick. That's something that just changes your life drastically.
0: And you're, you're both based in Europe now, is, is that's correct?
2: Yeah, I live around the corner.
0: <laughs> yeah, you he walked here. I live in Barcelona. <laughs> was that a result of the just the success and you know being sort of based in Europe for more gigs and things like that?
2: Well, most of our gigs were coming when we joined the Rebel Agency, which, were, which it was called in the beginning. When we first joined that, it was all you know European gigs. The album hit in Europe a lot stronger and faster than it hit in the US or in you know in South America. So it wasn't even the album, right? It was without you, without it was you, like, bam, and Vampire Nightclub both of those when those came out it was like bam and then when the album finally came and they started like making tours for us it was basically based in europe so we both were living in london at the beginning with our good friend we
1: tell them about the the dj frat house it was a (laughs) flop house (laughs) actually
2: it was actually jamie's flop house but it was a good one and this
1: is uh this is jamie jones yeah Yeah. it was it was jamie jones uh will who was our agent uh our other friend will Mm i think Foss
2: Foss came in after. With who else was in there? Richie came Rich,
1: in after. It was like it was really a flop house. Like we w- <laughs> we were all kind of crashing there, on on this like extended European tour, and we literally didn't know where we were sleeping like when we would get home on a monday not like there was much sleep going on yeah. <laughs> but it was literally like maybe you're on the floor in the studio or in the basement on a couch or wherever if luckily jamie or somebody's out of town it's like we're fighting over the bed
0: right? <laughs> so i can imagine that was uh an insane amount of fun but also pretty tarring uh yeah yeah that's why i took
2: off <laughs> yeah. he, got, he took off and he went to barcelona and then i stuck out in Got another frat house.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's just got a bunch of other <laughs> DJs crazy DJ
0: roommates. <laughs> yeah, and so we're talking here about 2010, 2011. That's that's right. And yes. uh, you mentioned without you coming out and basically your first full record as as Art Department was was a, a huge club hit. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how that affected things for you.
2: Well, it brought us where we are now and because of that. You know what I mean. Basically in the beginning, I would start something and he would like take it, listen to it, add what he had to add and finish it. I personally listened to it and I thought it was cool, but thanks to his knowledge and experience, he took it to where We're, it to
1: we're talking about without you now, yeah. specifically? Yeah,
2: specifically.
0: What did you hear initially in the sort of bare bones of the track and then what did you decide
1: to do to it? Originally, it was, uh, I mean, the vocal was completely finished and bass line and like the crazy high synth comes in later and everything. And, uh... I mean, it wasn't like I heard the parts and knew it was some kind of monster tune, but I remember you were on your way to Montreal, and I started working on it, and I had been in the studio maybe, I don't know, three and a half hours or something with it, and put some drums on it, and started kind of quickly coming up with an arrangement. I texted Jared, right, who's with you, from uh, My Favorite Robot, and I was (laughs) like, what did I say? I think we made a monster or something (laughs) like that. We made a
2: monster!
1: It was just one of those things, like, I just knew what this thing could do. I mean... I didn't know it was gonna do this, but I mean the record just caught and I think it was more of a timing thing than it was just that the record was so fucking amazing. It was like something new needed to happen. Everybody was ready to hear something new and there wasn't a whole lot of new at the time. You know, was minimal was just kind of phasing out and people were hungry for something with a lot more music, which is why kind of the Wolf and Lamb sound was really big at the time. That slower, musical, more soulful kind of stuff that kind of was influenced by house and it was just really good timing along with you know jamie and masio and denise and everybody that was kind of part of that sound i think it was enough between all of us to kind of really make something happen
0: and after you know you've kind of tinkered with it in the studio what were the first signs that it was gonna that it was gonna catch fire Is me dancing around my room alone like a <laughs> wacko <laughs> probably. <laughs> It was basically, it
1: was a big tune before it even got officially released. Yeah. Ha- how did that happen? Here's the story. This is the official story that nobody really knows. But our first gig as art department was in Toronto, a party that I was throwing with Jazz, who's our agent now. And uh, what was the club called? Was it? Cobra. With the Skulls. We did a rebel rave there. And we had Damien and Jamie and uh, I can't remember who else. But art, it was the first time like art department was on a bill, right? And it was for that... I had an after party at my place after, as we do. <laughs> we we're just listening to music and playing some of the stuff. Damien had heard about the project from Seth because we had already done Living the Life with Seth and we played that at the club. And I remember Damien taking a picture of this moment where he heard these two tracks and he's like, oh, this is amazing, art department. That happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know. There's a photo of like the three of us, like, and I'm holding up the CD that says Vampire Nightclub <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. Oh
2: no way! I need that. That's amazing.
1: So the, we went back to my place, and we're after partying, and Jamie was telling us about the new label that he was starting, which is Hot Creations. It didn't exist at the time. We were playing some of the music that we we're making, and there's 20 people in my house. It was kind of madness. And we played "Without You," and Jamie was losing his mind about That's "Without good. You." I was just like cool you know like if you like it take it for the new label and he's like really i'm like yeah sure
2: but we played it for both of them let's be real well
1: brilliant. d was in the room
2: he was in the room and we're not paying attention
1: but i know he says he was in the bathroom <laughs> but but i rem- i think he was in the room he was in the
2: room, i know he was
1: in- room. i remember he was in the room because he let my cat out right he, the he opened room. the window and my cat jumped out the window i almost killed him <laughs> <laughs> remember i like stopped the whole party I was- so anyways we gave jamie the record and he was, I guess, the only person that actually had the song mm-hmm. in his possession at that point. And he started playing it out, and I guess passed it to Lee Foss, and I guess we are going into a Ibiza season, right? They were playing it, and all of a sudden I was getting emails from like Clive Henry and all these people, and like Toll Free and people that I was in touch with, asking if they could have this record that they'd never heard, because rumors just started circulating about the song, and then I got the email from Damien saying, what's this song without you that I'm hearing about? <laughs> I was like, oh, it's this record, you know, we gave to Jamie for the new label. And he's like, can I hear it? So I sent it to Damien. And right away, he's like, "Uh, that's got to be on the album. Because at that point, we had made actually in the same night at that after party is when we made the album deal deal with Damien and gave Jamie without you. Which was clearly a conflict of interest. <laughs> so, uh, so that yeah. was a pretty kind of historic mm-hmm. after party, I guess you could say. Yeah, pretty important. I guess but so. Yeah. So I guess you know it got around a little bit quite early on that you know Jamie wanted this track and Damien wanted this track, and in the end, you know, we had a contract with Damien, so we had to give it to Damien, and Jamie wasn't super pleased about it at the time. But he's a gentleman. But he was cool. He yeah. Was cool about it. And uh, so that's kind of the story of how like the buzz started a without
0: you. So I guess it was kind of unintentionally a very shrewd marketing campaign to <laughs> just give it to a couple of high-profile DJs and, and, and yeah, they so broke I it that way. Yes, I had away. the whole thing planned.
2: Hey. <laughs> Scheming.
0: <laughs> As you, kind of, you alluded to, that the record ended up coming out on, uh, on Crosstown Rebels. And yeah. So when did your relationship with Damien start?
1: When did you guys first meet? Uh, ages ago, ages. ages ago. We brought him down. He was actually playing at Sonic, I guess, at the time and the club was getting shut down or something like a big kind of club that uh that was before david morales owned it right okay. it was when it was boa boa I yes guess. With what's okay name? so they were like confiscating the sound system that night that damien was supposed to be playing or something uh-huh. so we snatched him real quick and had him play a canada day party for us in toronto and that's got to be eight years ago or something longer than that longer i think longer than that man yeah maybe But I mean, I picked him up at the airport and hung out Canada Day and probably a few more days. So were you putting on parties regularly at this point in Toronto? Oh yeah, we had both been doing parties for ages in Toronto. Is that how you guys first met? No. I mean, I was actually paying to go see him play at clubs before I was even DJing way back at like Industry Nightclub and Comfort Zone and bunch of other shady places
2: <laughs> dark dingy
1: but uh we met i guess years later i, I would know, say 2000 and 2000 and shit i don't know 2004 maybe and you were both making music and DJing
0: at this point 2004
2: at 2004 i wasn't making music at this point i was DJing, and he was actually making music and got me back into making music the first album i did was because as a label owner, he was like, yeah, I know you got it and you still, I was making music from before, so he knew what I had done before. He asked me to do an album on his label, which I did, and that was my first introduction back into making music.
0: And Johnny, you, I've read an interview where you, um, you said you had to, to light a fire under Kenny's ass to, <laughs> to get him back into making music. How did you go about that? Oh, man, I don't know.
1: I don't know how I did it, actually.
2: I'm pretty hard to work with, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) Yeah. He did it, he did it.
1: it. (laughs) Yeah, I got him going again somehow. I mean, I think it was more, I mean, he was pretty comfortable kind of having had a really successful career with techno and turbo and everything and kind of being the biggest DJ in Toronto for years and years. And by the time I met him, it was kind of like the career was kind of, you know, tapering off and you were chilling, like at home a lot, relaxing. And I think it was kind of me coming into the picture and hanging out with this crew that was kind of already a crew in Toronto, and I hooked up with when I got back from Israel. That kind of, I think, just me being around kind of lit a fire under his ass because you know he saw like young, me coming up, the younger music, coming up, and
2: like, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I like that too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, when I got him to do the album, that was actually part of the reason that I started Number Nineteen. Like I had been doing some production that I thought was solid enough that. You know, we could get somewhere with it, and I didn't want to rely on you know shopping my shit to other labels. I never wanted to like put my future in other people's hands, so to speak. Having a potential album from Kenny was like a reason to start the label. So was that one of the first releases you put out, number nineteen? Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. What was it number the first release? Was number was, four or five?
0: Yeah,
2: number four, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Four or five. I don't know. It was one of those. It was one of the first ones. It's the first LP that came on on, the, on his label.
0: Tell me about what happened from from that point where you've you've asked Kenny to to put out a an album on your
1: label to where you start collaborating together in the studio. The funny thing is, it was like I guess a couple years even before we ended up moving in together.
2: We started working on tracks
1: and, together, though. But we weren't really working on music, right? Well,
2: when we worked on Robot Cabo... oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. there yeah, was like one song that we
2: worked on There's like, like one or two, yeah. a while ago. Like and the first one we sent Damien that he said no to, came out on. Um, Do you like how I watch how you dance? And you did the long, the creep, creep, the
1: creep. The creep. The yes. creep. That's right. Yeah. There was a couple. It wasn't until I guess, like even when we were living together, we weren't working together. It's we had separate, separate studios separate. upstairs and downstairs. <laughs> We were always playing together, and there was a point basically where I was doing only label parties now, and I wouldn't really play for anybody else. And so anytime we did a party, it was me, it was Kenny, it was Nitin, it was T. Mm-hmm. if T. would show up. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Unbelievable, that guy. <laughs> yeah, it was, really, it was in-house for a while, but we weren't making music together.
2: First one would be the remix for Damien, Don't Sleep. Don't Sleep. Don't That's sleep. where it all started, that really. That is really where it all started. Yeah, the Riz MC Kuchus, Track. Yes. We had
1: been partying with Damien for a few days in Toronto, years later, I guess. And uh, he went back and hit us up and actually asked me and Kenny to work together on a song. Because so I guess, I, I don't think it was that he thought there would be <laughs> magic. I think he just didn't want to exclude one of us yeah. from giving us a remix. <laughs> True. So he was like, do it together. together. And that was, it was essentially the beginning of that sound of yeah. our department. Were you guys like, oh yeah, that's a
0: natural thing for us to do and to go and make something together? Or how, how did that come together?
2: Well, when we got the parts, we made it in Johnny's studio. It was kind of weird because I hadn't really worked with anybody in the studio before and I didn't know how it would be like to on a real remix thing now. This is like a real deal thing. We're just not making tracks in our studio together, you know. Now we have a project that we have to work on. So it was kind of weird, you know, but it was where we can see what each other's contribution to a song would be or how we would work together on working on a song. In the beginning, I'm not gonna lie. It was kind of it's kind of weird. But then when the songs started to come together, I was like, "This is amazing!" And I can honestly see myself working with him on music. I didn't know it would be a partnership like the way that it is. And I even had songs that I had made and said, "Just give it to him and say, you know, work on it or add something to it or whatever," because I trusted, you know, his mindset and how he makes music. So it was a good relationship.
0: And it w- was it straight off the bat, Kenny. You were sort of providing vocals and a, and a basic kind of foundation of a track and then Johnny would take it from there? Was that what you were doing straight away?
2: That was more or less the plan. I didn't even know. Like, the first album I started, I did one song that had my, I put my vocal in and I didn't really know that, you know, I was able to sing again. You know what I mean? I've been smoking, drinking, partying. I'm like, this voice is gone for sure. So when that song came out, I realized that maybe I could start doing a few more songs with vocals on it. And obviously I would give him to him because I know that he can do what he does. So basically from the start, that's how it started. Me doing the vocals and around a little bit of music that I put together so I can actually sing to the tune and then giving it to Johnny.
0: And Johnny, you mentioned you were you know, throwing mostly label parties at this point for number 19. Was that an opportunity for you to, to start playing music from your friends around Toronto and the people that were involved with the label?
1: I mean, well, we'd been doing parties for ages, and we were pretty specific about the kind of music that we were playing. And I mean, yeah, of course, we're always pushing what we're doing, but it was really, really a niche thing at that time. Like, there was literally, like, you know, one like-minded crew, it seemed like, in North America. Like, we had the Drew guys in L.A. doing Culprit, and, like, we actually became close with them just because it seemed like they were the only other people on that side of the pond that were into the same kind of music that we were. And I mean, I'm sure there was small groups everywhere, but kind of really kind of going out there and bringing proper talent that are like really pushing boundaries to the point where you're kind of losing money (laughs) when you're doing it, you know?
2: Chances are they were not kind. They were really losing some money, but doing it for the love of it. Yeah, You know what I mean? For the music itself, this is what they believed in. And so those are the kind of people you want to be surrounded by. And
0: so, so paint a bit of a picture of what Toronto's club scene was like at that time.
2: Still very underground at that time in the sense when I say underground not like you can just go somewhere and hear good music you would have to know you know who's throwing a party or who's throwing an after-party and Know what's gonna be a party that has maybe about 300 people in it
1: and I mean we we had been doing a party at that time for a few years at a place called Pais mm-hmm. and Lily which is on College Street in Little Italy where it's all just kind of bars and small small lounges and I mean it was me Kenny Nitin, like our entire crew playing in a bar, like a hookah bar that held, I don't know what capacities, like 90 people 150 in 150 wall to wall. Like that was our weekly, you know. I also had a, I was running an after hours, of like a booze can every Friday night until eight or nine in the morning or whatever, where we would all be playing as well after Pais or whatever it was we were doing. And then one promoter named Kerry Britt, who's a good friend of ours, became the booker for a club called Sonic which was David Morales' club in Toronto, which was like the equivalent of stereo kind of in Toronto. And uh, Kerry, I'd known for a long time, and he was really, really forward-thinking and all about kind of pushing boundaries and pushing edgier music and really believed in me and Kenny and what we were doing. He was really instrumental in bringing that music kind of, you know, to Toronto. He started giving us like opportunities to showcase the label at Sonic, which is, you know, kind of crazy. And I was a resident at the club, Quite often at like 5 in the morning, you know, whatever was going on earlier, I would end up just like playing the weirdest shit from 5 a.m. on. Yeah, I mean, at that time, it was hard to find music that I guess we would consider proper music. I mean, there's a lot of house music still in Toronto. It was around, but I mean, really underground, really edgy, really pushing boundaries I don't know it was it was tough what capacity are we talking here like what sort of crowds were you playing in front of the sonic crowd that would be like 900 to 900, to 900, 900 people 12. a week yeah. yeah and it we would do like the odd warehouse party at like 99 Sudbury we did that Halloween with Trent Moller. yes which was that was a big day for Toronto also yeah. I think
2: and Andrew spot we did a few spot we did a party at his spot yeah still still an underground thing
0: yeah and taking things back to point where without you's come out and you've started working on the drawing board, what was that process like?
1: And what kind of pressure were you feeling at that point where you've you've, you've put out one? No, sprint? it wasn't wasn't like that because we made the deal for the album before Damien even heard without you because it all happened that one night where he kind of missed without you. So we made the majority of this album with no pressure, nothing to lose, a lot to gain. <coughs> And, you know, there was nothing there. There was no bullshit clouding the creative process at all.
0: And what's Damien like to work with in terms of a label boss?
2: He's demanding, but he's not like... I had no problems with working with him, to tell you the honest truth. It's like exactly what I thought it would be is is what it was. He wanted the music. He wanted the parts. He got the music and he got the parts. Actually, did he get the parts? for? No, we actually decided that we didn't want (laughs)
1: anything on the... The album, album to remixed. be remixed. Like that was it.
2: And the <laughs> mere fact that he went for that, he actually used to sometimes tell us, yeah, the song should be shorter, and Johnny would be like, Well, that's a pass then if you don't want it, then you'd be like, Okay, no, 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 I'll take it, I'll take it. He's pretty easygoing.
0: So was it important for you to be able to to disagree with him?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been comfortably <laughs> disagreeing with Damien for years and years. I mean, Damien's one of my best friends, you know, so I understand how he works i actually take a lot of cues from him and i really respect how he runs his business and he really is a visionary you know he's not just putting out records he has a vision and a really specific kind of aesthetic to everything that he's doing and i really respect that and i really understand that and at the same time i'm kind of the same in some respects and you know i had a vision for our department and we knew what we wanted for our music and how we wanted it perceived and it's easy to butt heads when two people really, really believe in something, you know? And so it's it's just different perspectives coming together, but I mean, it worked. And you mentioned having a, a vision for art
0: department. I'm, I'm interested to, to know how you came about deciding what
1: that vision was. Well, I mean, it was based off the sound, I think, that we yep. created, right? I mean, we knew what the sound was. We kind of knew how it's a total package, you know, like being an artist it's show business too, you know? So you know how you, want, how you want it to be perceived, being a fan of music and a fan of so many artists over the years, you kind of know what's cool or what you think is cool anyways, you know, in terms of like visually what will represent the music and all that, and the kind of music that you want to DJ in relation to the kind of music you're making. You know, it's all part of a package and how it's gonna be received. It seems to have worked amazingly
0: well, I guess to the point where you guys went from being pretty much unknown to incredibly popular, what were the positive and negative aspects of what you describe as a meteoric rise?
2: The negative part would be that, again, the traveling and the touring and the not being able to be in the studio to make the music that made you where you are right now, It's like when I get into my studio now, it's like I lock everything out and I'm in there because that's the only time I have to be in there. It's not like before where we could just sit down and relax and be in our studios and make the music that we want to make. And then the touring, when that comes involved, it's like it just beats you up, a lot of it. you know. When we first started, we were like, 13 dates in 10 days like so it does take a toll of you
1: yeah i mean it hasn't even slowed down a whole lot it hasn't i mean done. i'm sitting here right now i've got like a sprained left wrist a <laughs> dislocated right shoulder my ear didn't work for like a month and a half this year like and and they're all kind of dj related injuries i guess i mean yeah Some in a <laughs> roundabout way i Some mean it, it beats you up whether it whether i fell or not you know like it was in the battle. I'm not in good condition. <laughs> I mean, looking at
0: you know the listings for your gigs for the last few years, I mean, there's 130-odd listed in 2011 on RA, 130-plus <laughs> in 2012, 110 in 2013, and you Hence you sort of up to almost 90 this year. Hence the one ear, one shoulder, one <laughs> 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 You know, you've had a, a residency at DC10 this summer. Can you tell me about how that went?
1: It was great this year. I mean, we've been there for... Four years. Four years. This, this was our fourth this year. This is our fourth year. Yeah, um, that was really cool because I mean, we were stuck in Toronto, just kind of watching videos of DC Ten on YouTube and shit, like everyone else. Yeah, you right. know, it's just like, fuck, I'd kill the be there, never mind play. And our first time in Ibiza was to play DC Ten twice in one week, like Tanya's night on the Friday, yeah, the Circle Local on the Monday, and we played, I guess, how many times that summer? Like, we were residents straight away. Like.
2: We played like about six, seven, six times, was yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, we
1: were residents from the first time we landed in Ibiza, which is crazy. How, how did that come about? Uh, Clive Henry. That's right. Clive was really, really like a huge supporter of the music first because we were close with Clive, so he was getting the music first and hearing it before anybody. He was super excited about it and had us do a mix specifically for the DC10 guys. They were into the mix and Without You had just kind of come out that season and that was it we were in and how's your relationship with that club and Ibiza in general developed since
0: you know over those four years
2: good we still love enjoy playing there we'll, the, the owners are cool they they like us I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think. you
1: can't tell us sometimes
2: yeah it's hard <laughs> But yeah, for me, I I I enjoy it, and if you were to talk for our department, yeah, I would say the same. It's I love playing there.
1: Yeah, I love that club, and the owner. Everybody's super cool. The whole staff is really cool. It's it's a special place. It really is. Like, there's a lot of clubs that are a lot of hype, and then there's the clubs that it really makes sense. Yeah, and something happens even playing there. Like, it's I don't want to like on wood, but it's like.
2: You can do no wrong. Yeah, you just you
1: <laughs> play, like your A-game just comes out every time you're there. And it, it does it's pull the A-game for out. everybody. Mm-hmm. We are just there for closing this week, and I swear to God, every single person played A- amazing. Yeah. I'm interested
0: to know, because, you know, you're playing at DC10, you're playing at places like Panorama Bar or Fabric, and you're also, in the last couple of years, been built to play some of the mega, like, U.S. festivals, Ultra, EDC, and the like. Do you find yourself having to change the style of or the way you're playing for these different audiences?
2: Yeah. 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 Of
0: course. I mean
1: it's not it's not changing the style to something bullshit we don't want to play music yeah. to play an EDM festival. I mean, the thing is we only collect music that we like, you know. So I mean, whether it's harder or softer or houseier or techno, it's still us, you know? It's not like I've got a collection of music or a Folder on my USB stick that's the garbage folder. Yeah, the <laughs> shit folder for for festivals, you know, like it's still it's all our music It's it's what we're playing appropriate if we're playing for 20,000 people at Lollapalooza yeah. It's not what we're gonna do for 400 people in Amsterdam or something, you know, so it's interesting It's it's a challenge for us too, you know, tell me about some of your
0: experiences playing at the, the bigger US festivals
2: To be very honest if you're gonna ask me if I enjoyed the festivals here the festivals here a little bit more but i enjoy playing at you know this week enjoy playing at more smaller venues not small small but small enough like the festivals in any festival it's hard to focus on just you know one sound or one person so when i go there i just know what i have to do is an hour and a half set at most you go you play an hour and a half of what you know more or less the banging stuff it's it's, it's different at those edm festivals it's like there's a lot younger for starters and so a lot of them don't even know really who we are you know so when they do we have to kind of introduce it in a nice way our sound but still realize you're playing at an American festival
1: yeah I mean I think when you say they don't know who we are I mean we are playing like our stages with yes. our people and I think it's more people know about the hype and they know the name and they know without you maybe than they really know who we are and what we're about you know so we're not really venturing out of like what we do at all no no, at no. any of them
0: you ever get a sense when you play at these festivals that there are some people who maybe stumble across your stage and maybe start li- listening to your music and and are getting converted from say absolutely EDM yeah. for or... sure
1: i get messages from these people all the time mm-hmm. like if you look at the art department facebook or we check our messages from time to time even personal messages like and i mean we're not on instagram or twitter or anything so i mean facebook is how people reach out to us and we get messages like this all the time. And the first time they heard us was here and they, that's it. Now they're hooked, you know? OK, I
0: want to I sort of try things all the way back. Kenny, tell me about your experiences with, with production and, and how you got into dance music in Toronto.
2: Well, I used to buy a lot of records. When I first started, this is before I wanted to be a DJ. I used to walk in the record store and just you know, pick up a few records that I liked, because at the moment, that's all I could afford. So I would pick up a few, go home, listen to them. And then go out that night, let's just say on a Saturday night, to a warehouse party, which was basically a warehouse that someone threw a brick through the window, opened a door, and set up a system. So those were going on quite often in Toronto without being you know, busted by the police. So I would go there, and I would hear like maybe about 20 minutes of really good music that I liked, and then maybe about 30 that I didn't like. So then I started buying more records and practicing at home to the point where I said, okay, I want to like be maybe a DJ. So then i started, like, how he, when he first, you know, he got into our crew, which was already an established crew, I myself got into an established crew of DJs that were working at the record store. So they finally let me play, which I started playing by myself, and I met two other guys, Jeremy and Mike, and we started a crew called JMK, which ended up, the only way we would play in Toronto is if we threw our own parties. So we had a whole bunch, a whole series of JMK parties, and then finally they wanted to go do stuff to make real money real jobs i continued to want to be a dj i hooked up with this guy named shams who owned a record label called jinx records and i come from a natural singing background like a choir and stuff like that so he knew that and was like i want you to do some vocals for some stuff for me in a real studio i went to uh m1 you might know him from labels like Motive, an old school dj and um producer he had a studio Brought me into a studio and we worked on a track called Pressing On. Pressing On, yeah. Which had a Nick Holder remix and uh, did really good in Toronto. And around the world, but basically in Toronto and America. From that, I went on to do another song called You Got a Hold on Me, which was a double EP, which had a Ralph Falcon from Merck remix. And then after that, I hooked up with someone called Noel Nanton and we started something called the Junk Hunters, all on Jinx Records. And then from that, I started taking the hiatus of being just a DJ and doing some traveling. And then Tiga from Turbo asked me at one of the WMC's if I would do the, the Toronto Turbo mix sessions, which was the beginning of me starting to do the tour by myself So because I, I had to tour the CD. So I did that CD And then I had a high point of just like DJing, no really making music. And then I met this guy. And that's where his story starts.
0: (laughs) And yeah, Johnny, would you take me back to how you first started encountering dance music in Toronto?
1: Okay, I was actually a promoter before I was a DJ. I was like kind of young, out of school and into some pretty bad stuff. It was kind of getting heavy to the point where I needed to, I guess, find something else that would make me money. And I was already partying and I hadn't really discovered like the underground, underground. I'm talking when I was 16. Okay, so and, and what type of music are we talking here? We're talking, you know, I was going to clubs with friends who weren't heads, you know, and there was only really one club that was playing like a club. There was warehouse parties, but there was only one club or two clubs playing real underground house music at that time. That was Industry Nightclub and Exit to Eden. Oh, and there was the Buzz also, right? Yeah. So I was just going to regular clubs with friends who weren't, you know, about the music until I sort of found out about these clubs like Industry and Exit in. And I think I had just turned 17 maybe. And I had a fake ID that said I was, wasn't even legal. I wasn't 19. I was 18 on my fake ID, but you only had to be 18 to get into Industry Nightclub after 2 a.m. Because they would stop serving. So I would go with my friends and, you know, when they were done for the night at 2 a.m., I was going on solo missions to industry nightclub and these places where I could get in and sit outside and wait for a minute until it's two o'clock and then started kind of bringing other friends down to that. And, uh, I started hooking up with like an older crowd of, you know, guys that had finished my high school, the same high school that I went to. And they were promoting some nightclubs in midtown, like around Young and Eglinton area, which is like, you know, not quite downtown, but not the suburbs. And I started promoting nightclubs with them because I was you know, out of school and kind of hustling and I knew a lot of people in a lot of different areas. So I started promoting these clubs with them and got to a point where I guess I was 18 now and G-Spot opened up and I was pretty heavy into the music now. Like I wasn't looking at being a performer or a DJ or anything like that, but I was really, really obsessed with the music. What kind of artists or labels were you following at this point? I was really, really obsessed with Chicago shit at that time. Like the Derek Carters and Sneaks and J-Dubs and Heather and Green Velvet. That shit was like, that was my bag at the time. You know, I was seeing everybody from like Richie to Tanaglia to Roger Sanchez. Actually, I was a big fan of Roger at that time. So I was promoting this new club, G-Spot, that just opened. And it was like On Fire was the hottest club in Toronto. And we had Peter and Tyrone doing the main room, which was like... To me like this thing i was really excited about because they were like industry residents where i kind of found out about this music and we had them playing the main room of this sort of commercial club was that your decision to get those guys on board no i mean i was pushing for it but it wasn't my decision it was kind of a big crew of older guys that i was promoting with but i basically i knew so many people in toronto like i had turning guest lists of 600 people to these clubs just because i was you know getting around so much and i'd been out of school for so long So it was during that time when we were promoting G-Spot that my friend Ian bought turntables and he was living at home. And within a week of him buying turntables, his parents were like, either these things go or you go. So I was like, I'll take this shit off you because I was super into the music. I wasn't thinking I want to be a DJ. I was just like, yeah, whatever, I'll have this shit at home. Got his turntables and I think one was just a record player actually and it was like a Radio Shack mixer and shit. And so, you know, quickly I turned it in for 1200s and uh, a rain mixer and, you know, you just start collecting the music because you like the music. Before I knew it, I was playing. My first gig was at Comfort Zone, which is another place I used to go see this guy play. And none of us should ever admit that we've been there or played there. <laughs> but uh, Was it not the, the best club in the world? Or? It, it actually was the best club in the world for a minute.
2: It was a really good, a cool club with a lot of unsavory characters, but really cool a lot of DJs when they were playing the big gigs would come in and play at the comfort zone after for an after party
1: and I mean it was like a Sunday morning to you know Monday morning kind of thing like it was as after hours as you get in North America so I played there and just started collecting and I mean I didn't really make a a real go at it until I kind of got back from I had actually moved to Israel to make a go at it for a short period of time I wasn't really going out as much i was kind of i'd gone through all the money that i'd been saving up from all the shady shit i was doing and i was in a relationship and i kind of just bounced to israel i was actually sort of forced into it because i was running away from something but that's a whole other story <laughs> seems that's like a fairly massive move to make yeah i mean it was kind of like i need to get the fuck out of toronto quick or else i'm that might Travel. be it <laughs> so uh i bounced to israel i was like literally like had mix cds and was like going to clubs and passing them around i had hooked up with this one guy who owned a club i think it was called fetish or something i could be wrong but um i got there and i got in with this guy he was like okay cool we're gonna make you a superstar dj out here and all this shit and the first gig that I had arranged with this guy was the official after party for Love Parade in Israel, which is like a massive, massive thing. The week or maybe just a couple of days before Love Parade, and I was waiting for this one gig to kind of launch my career in Israel. And there was a bombing in Haifa out there the same week that that was meant to happen. So Love Parade was canceled and I'd been out there for months and months kind of waiting for this first gig. You know, I'd gone through tons of money, everything I pretty much had left. And that was kind of it. The gig was canceled. I ran out of money, went back to Toronto, and that's kind of when I hooked up with Jazz and Eddie and Kenny and Ninton and the crew. Wow. <laughs> that's <Okay>. nothing.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask about your social experiment parties. Tell me a bit
1: about the, the idea behind that. There are more and more these days. I mean, it's not something we've pushed or rushed. We got really lucky with this because they've basically been sold out ever since we started. We used to just do them as after parties at festivals, basically. You know, it would be like a side thing at DEMF. DEMF was the first one, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it just kind of became this thing. It was us and jazz and everybody involved with the label putting together these parties. And uh, it was always just crew. You know, we didn't really have, like, headliners. And uh, none of us were really even that successful at the time. But, uh, I mean, it's kind of standard. You have a record label, you need showcases. But the difference between just a number 19 showcase where it's like, you know, any few guys from the label are playing. This is more of, it's more of an event. Everybody's kind of aware of a more cohesive sound for the night that we're going for. It's got to be three, what we consider to be headlining acts for it to be a social experiment. It's the best way for the listeners to interact with us and get a feel for, you know, what we really do, you know, cause there's this distance between the listener and the people making the music when it's just, you know, you know, The record comes out the listener buys it whereas like you know you're in the venue you're experiencing the live energy of the artist it's it's a different thing there's that back and forth just like any dj said but it's an important thing it's essential for a record label i think and you say you it needs to have three headliners where does that leave you guys in terms of when you play on the on the night actually we play every single one there's no social experiment that happens without us there and we might evolve into that but i mean i still feel like it's in its early stages and like I said, we're not rushing it. So, you know, I feel like it needs that impact there. Will you guys warm up in the night or would you, will you play
0: the peak time slot? Or how does that how does that work? Or is it all pretty fluid? One,
2: It's it's usually peak time. People are there, especially if they see the name on the flyer. They come to see us, you know what I mean? So we can't just, we'd love to start and let everybody else do, you know, what they're supposed to do. But I think, you know, a lot of people that come there come to, to see our department.
1: The brand is really associated with, art department and off the back of the success of art department as well so and tell me a bit about your live show live as in DJing or live 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 non-existent it's
2: so <laughs>
1: <different>. <laughs> it, it existed for a quick second when we were asked to do uh, the made show for BBC and we came up with a live show for three songs yeah I guess and just kind of went back to DJing and I mean it's something we've talked about and then did you also play live in Miami once
2: well, if we say live, live, like we didn't have any gear or anything. We had our music and I would probably, I, mean, I would do vocals. That went on
1: about the first show, I guess. At, what, you, yeah. what are you talking about at the Electric Pickle? 2010, yeah. That yeah. Was the show. That was the first show at Get Lost at I the Get Pickle, Lost. which yeah. kind of launched us as, as DJs. But I mean, that set was me DJing almost all of our own music, mm-hmm. like exclusively. Most of the stuff we'd written for the album, a few remixes, and mm-hmm. Kenny was singing on almost every track. So that was, you know, it was DJing instrumentals with Kenny singing, which isn't exactly a
0: live show. Sure. From your action, it doesn't seem like you've got any massive urge to go and put together a more
1: traditional live show.
2: For me personally, I don't know what he's thinking. For art department, I don't know if that's that's something. we thought about it.
1: We talk about it, we yeah. we kind of talk about it and get excited about it and then, you know, There's get tired that. and get <laughs> up and...
2: Takes a lot, because again, if you're gonna do a live show, if I go to see a live show, I want to see a live show. And this is how we think, too. If we're going to do a live show, we're going to do it like a live show. And it's going to take a lot of work for us to, like...
1: It's a lot of work. I mean, just talking to Jamie about what he went through with the hot natured live show. And, I mean, I know everybody, including R.A., kind of wasn't super into it. And, you know, there's a lot of reference to boy band shit. And I get it. I see what it is. But the amount of work that went into that show and the production that came out of it, to me, I mean whether you're into the music or not that was a proper live show and I was super blown away by that and to think of what goes into that and then to put it on us and in the context of like touring and everything it's just it's it's not realistic for us I guess you guys have also put out some mix CDs
0: I think the the most recent was the the one that was in collaboration with BPM festival yeah how do you guys go about putting a mix CD together you both sit down and and work it out
2: No, the mixed CDs, usually, like, I would contribute music. It just makes sense, you know, for probably just one person to do it. I trust his judgment, and I know he's got great music, and I know he's a great mixer. So, like, he'll ask me, you know, just give me a few tracks that you think should be on the CD. And basically, he does the mixed CDs.
1: It's essentially, you know, what we're doing at the moment. Like, it's going to sound a lot like the set that we play last night if we're doing a mixed CD tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We're basically doing it together. And in terms of that BPM
0: series, it's also in collaboration with Number 19 Music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm interested to know how, where, where you plan taking the label in the coming sort of years and if you're actually
1: able to devote much time to working with other artists. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really heavy into the label. I'm a control freak and I've had a hard time kind of relinquishing responsibility and letting staff just kind of do their thing and Nitten's a big part of it. Brown who's also a partner and has moved over from Australia now to Barcelona is doing a great job helping out and Mayor Daniel who's the label manager now. Where I see it going I mean there's no end game I think after five years it's it's in a really good place and I'm happy with what we've achieved in our back catalogue which to me it's all about the catalogue you know it's you want to look at this in 10 20 years and just be like wow this is a collection of amazing music that's going to stand the test of time and i think we're we're on our way there
2: if I